Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Will Summer. Welcome to The Daily Beast's Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm currently working on a book about QAnon called Trust the Plan for HarperCollins coming out later this year. And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Hey, Will. So over the weekend, I was watching this Trump rally out in Wyoming, and there's a lot of talk about rhino hunting these days. Not the rhino kind of hunting that... Not Cecil the Lion type rhino hunting. (laughs) Exactly. We're talking about Republicans in name only hunting. But this new language is getting awfully popular with these hunts for rhinos. Of course, they went out with uh, Donald Trump kind of spearheading this effort to Casper, Wyoming on Saturday. And they were out there trying to knock off primary incumbent Liz Cheney out there, who, of course, is kind of a foe to kind of the mag hardcores, if you will. So this rhino hunting term is really picking up some speed. So there's been a long time that for, gosh, at least since I was in high school, This has been an insult, right? Is calling someone a rhino or a Republican in name only. And my first experience with this was I was at a, as a young Republican, I was at this like Republican state representative debate. And this guy, kind of a big guy, kind of like a thumb type looking guy. (laughs) He said, they've called me a rhino. And I thought, well, he kind of does look like a rhino. And he was really like, I can't believe they called me a rhino and all this. And I was like, well, that's kind of a cute little insult if they're throwing that around. But obviously, it's not that cute. So it it is Republican in name only. It's like calling someone a shill, say they're simping for the Democrats. But what you're saying here is that this language has gotten a little more aggro. Yeah, yeah, very, very much so. I mean, you're seeing kind of a term which was once kind of out of bounds for a publication, of course, like Red State, which is this smaller conservative blog. Of course, this is the blog that said, oh, we're not going to have a rhino hunting contest. Contest. They kind of pulled back from the language a year or so ago. What do you mean by a rhino hunting contest? Yeah. So, of course, Red State, which is this kind of conservative publication, kind of encouraged its readers to go on, quote unquote, a rhino hunt. And this was, of course, kind of pretty loaded language, right? Kind of hunting Republicans down and, and kind of creating lists of rhinos. And at the time, I reported it at Mediate. And long story short, they ended up pulling back on kind of going rhino hunting. And But now we've seen kind of a turn to very much supporting this type of language and supporting going after people they believe rhinos. For example, of course, we have kind of these ultra MAGA candidates like Mike Crispy <laughs> up in New Jersey, of course, who is rhino hunting with Roger Stone. So there are a lot of these types of folks who are out trying to out swing 
conservative members of Congress that have been there for a long time to the right. So basically they're saying we're seeing an increase in this overheated rhetoric. I mean, what's next? Hunt these rhinos, cut off their precious ivory horns, that kind of stuff. Where do you think this is all headed? Well, I think it's headed to an interesting spot. I think, of course, on Saturday night, we saw Kevin McCarthy give a virtual speech at the Trump rally, and he was booed by Trump supporters, right? Which is a really interesting thing to occur, right? Because, of course, McCarthy, Leader McCarthy, has tried to kind of make himself friendly to the MAGA set, if you will. But at the same time, there are a lot of people that are still really upset at him forever, kind of saying some of these things on some of the tapes that were published by the New York Times, which, of course, included that Trump should kind of step down from his post as president. So, look, the term continues to be used, and I think it could ultimately continue to fracture the Republican Party in more ways than one. They're on the savannah, and rhinos are everywhere. Yeah. Okay. It is interesting. The idea that Kevin McCarthy is this rhino kind of plays into one of my favorite tropes whenever the right is about to take back the House. They love to say, like, anyone can be Speaker of the House. It doesn't necessarily have to be a member of Congress. And so you get, like, let's make, obviously, the big one now is let's make Donald Trump the Speaker of the House or let's make, like, Mark Levin. Oftentimes it's like, (laughs) who's like a great intellectual mind, right? So it's like, let's make Michael Medved the Speaker of the House, Glenn Beck, whatever. And yeah, I mean, certainly I think as the definition, at least the basis definition of who's a rhino gets a little tighter and tighter. I think we're just going to see more and more accusations of who's a rhino. Yeah. And my favorite thing about that, too, is the whole deal with Roger Stone's three-step plan to, I think it's a three-step plan, to implement Donald Trump as Speaker of the House. So it's like this bonkers three-step plan, which includes like installing him because a speaker doesn't need to necessarily be a member of Congress. And then it's like, oh, well, Trump really doesn't want to be a member of Congress because it's kind of a step down from the president. So then they're put in like the super awkward position with trying to like bend Trump into being kind of this bigger figure than what he is. Okay, before we move on and really get into the meat of the show, I wanted to flag, I will be preparing on an upcoming Netflix series. No, it's not Stranger Things. It's the web crime docuseries Web of Make-Believe. It's coming out June 15th. I'm in an episode about the Seth Rich conspiracy theory, that whole saga. And I want to flag, when I was on the HBO show, a lot of people said, Will, you look like crap. Your haircut's terrible. (laughs) They mistook the Daily Beast office for my house. They said, why does your house have so many rows of desks in it? Why does it have all these office water jugs? Uh, Why does it have such ugly carpet? (laughs) And so fans of my appearance on docuseries should be extra excited because this was shot last year in the D.C. July heat. I was wearing a suit. We were in a warehouse with no AC. So I think the true crime may be the lack of AC that I had to film in. But some people have seen screeners and they say it's interesting. I think if you're interested in the stuff we talk about here on Fever Dream, I think you'll enjoy the show called Web of Make Believe and it's on Netflix on June 15th. I'm looking forward to watching that, Will. You talk about Jack Berkman? Yeah, I talk about the whole Seth Rich crew. I mean, it's a show that I think touches on a lot of sort of internet-based crimes. Mm Mm-hmm. And obviously, we know that the Seth Rich story not only involved a murder, but ultimately did involve some real crimes in terms of people hacking into Jack Berkman, the conspiracy theorist's email. And indeed, eventually, he did get shot in the bottom by a rival conspiracy theorist while holding his dachshund, Jack Jr. I have not seen the show. I don't know how much it gets into dachshund-related murder attempts. But either way, I think it'll be worth a watch. Wow. I'm looking forward to watching that one on uh, June 15th. All right. Good plug, Zach. Okay. Okay, Zach, so in light of the Uvalde school shooting, I thought we could run down, obviously a big topic right now is gun control and Republicans' attempts to stymie it. And in many ways, I think this is a story we've seen many times before in terms of the Republican reaction to a mass shooting. But in other ways, I think this one has some new angles on it. And so I thought it might be useful to run down sort of what the reaction on the right has been and sort of the, I think I'm seeing a couple trends and I think it's worth highlighting. Yeah, I'll start us off with one. I think one of the trends is kind of the 
this guns aren't the problem thing, right? Of course, we see kind of characters like Sebastian Gorka and other MAGA world characters, of course, over the weekend, kind of making this into kind of somewhat of, of a joke, kind of making light of the shooting to a certain extent and kind of going out and, and kind of picturing, uh, taking pictures with guns and like shooting guns and sashaying around with guns, right? Who's sashaying around with guns? This is Sebastian Gorka. Yeah. What did he do? Yeah. So he's like out at a firing range taking photos with guns, kind of glamorizing guns during this really sad time. So Sebastian Gorka writes, Glocks have a well-deserved rep. He goes on to describe kind of the trigger of Glocks. Goes on to further write, a custom gun without the custom price tag, now six months. So he's almost hawking guns, right? He's promoting guns on a show. He frequently promotes guns, promotes the sale of guns, encourages users to use a promo code to kind of unlock certain special guns and, and discount codes. So it really has turned into this kind of arm yourself to a T almost. So one aspect you have is kind of just doubling down on guns and guns rock, whatever. I think another aspect here is you kind of throw out this chaff of like saying, well, it's the mental health situation or the problem is not enough people go to church. <laughs> These kind of things that are like the church. Yeah. Okay. Let me just go tinker in the soul of the nation there. <laughs> These things that are very, how would you do this? I mean, the reality is what they, we talked a few weeks ago about the new rights desire for like a theocratic monarchy, which I think is like the only way you could actually do that. But at the same time, you kind of just throw out a lot of garbage that really doesn't have any solution or a solution that can't be implemented. Scott Adams, of course, who people know as the Dilbert guy, he said it should be legalized for kids to shoot their bullies. This then becomes all these people on the right are then arguing about, oh, well, that's a good idea, but what about the bully's free speech and stuff? I mean, I don't think it'll get to that point, folks. But in sort of some more, some people with some actual amount of power, I mean, the obvious thing we see all the time is don't politicize it. Here, I think Ted Cruz is a great example because Ted Cruz is really sort of running through all of these things. So first of all, Ted Cruz, he says, oh, how unfair to politicize this. In many ways, I think that's so pat. We don't even really have to get into it. But I think that is because the game being played here, right, is hold off on doing anything up until sort of the, the political value of this moment passes and so first you say oh well how unfair to politicize this right and so we have ted cruz saying these politicians are trying to politicize it all right then you have this thing that i I feel like i'm seeing a lot more which is not just that people have these gun rights but that like restricting these things in any way well we can't infringe the rights of our of our law-abiding citizens so ted cruz says we can't react to evil and tragedy by abandoning the constitution or infringing on the rights of our law-abiding citizens so that's kind of a different tack there and then finally I think the one that got the most attention is whenever one of these shootings happens, you kind of zero in on or the right does they sort of zero in on other things that happened that went wrong things that theoretically could have prevented this shooting so in the case of this gunman they say well he made all these comments about shooting up the school why did no one do anything and the big one that's gotten a lot of attention is this idea that the door he went through was unlocked never mind that a guy with a gun can blow open a window or a glass wall and walk right through and so in this case we have obviously ted cruz got very big into the idea of door control saying that we need to have one door in and out of a school zach What are your thoughts on the school bunker movement? Makes no sense to me. Yeah, no, this whole thing about deflecting kind of the blame here is quite fascinating. I will say, too, one of the other things that's kind of similar to door control is like this idea of being proposed by the right where it's like, well, why weren't all the teachers armed? It just doesn't make sense, right? I mean, this is a school. So it's a lot of these things, a lot of 
diverting blame, of course, over the weekend, we saw at the NRA convention, it was kind of much of the same kind of this term kept being thrown around kind of hardening schools, hardening schools, of course, conservatives see kind of the money being shipped over to places like Ukraine now as a problem and think that money should have gone to hardening schools kind of in light of the shooting. It's kind of a lot of like what about ism at this point to a certain extent where it's kind of anything but the guns, right? I think that's right on. I mean, basically, like, I think the thing to understand here, right, is the, the name of the game for them is avoiding the very, like, obvious trade-off that they want to make and they're fine making, which is having these massacres as long as they get to keep their guns. And, and in the case of the politicians, as long as they don't have to, they, they aren't pressured by the broader voting public into doing something and thus end up alienating the Republican base and probably getting primaried. And so you have to kind of obfuscate that they're fine with that trade-off. And so that means throwing out chaff like door control or legalizing bully murder or this kind of vague idea about like, well, I guess. One thing that struck me about all this is this kind of rise of the idea of like intrinsic evil in America. Lauren Boebert said, well, you can't do anything about evil. Mike Cernovich was saying, well, the problem here is that kids aren't taught spiritual warfare. I mean, this is kind of this like idea that that I'm seeing more and more that America is kind of this like uniquely cursed, benighted nation upon the earth. And that like we have this like demon inside of us. And I think like some people might make that argument, but it's not typically one you see from the right. And so this kind of idea of like, ah, well, what can be done about it? Nothing, I guess. Obviously, I think there's a lot of arguments going on. And unfortunately, obviously, this is one we've seen more and more. In many ways, I think there's a script to it. But I think Uvalde, because it was a school, it kind of scrambled the narrative for the right for at least a few days. Yeah. And I would say, too, there was, while the right's kind of tossing out these wild ideas, there are more practical solutions, of course. I know I was watching 60 Minutes this past week, and there was this entire segment on kind of kids now having to go to school with kind of uh, whole packets devoted to stopping bleeding from mass shootings, right, with like a tourniquet and, and gauze and things like this. So there are people proposing solutions out there, and it's a really sad time to even see kids now traveling to school with a tourniquet to begin with. And what you're saying there, I mean, that's essentially a workaround to deal with the fact that the Republican Party is just does not want to do anything about guns. It's really important to understand, I think, because, you know, sometimes people blame the NRA and obviously they're responsible for a lot of, I think, the right's radicalization on guns. But the idea the base, like if you go to these things, if you talk to Republican voters, they really do not want certainly the grassroots, the hardcore partisans. They do not want any gun laws. We see the rise of constitutional carry, which effectively means you don't have to be licensed to carry a gun in some of these states. You can just buy a gun. It always strikes me sometimes i go to trump rallies and stuff and i see people wearing these shirts that say shall not be infringed and of course that's a play on the second amendment line that gun rights shall not be infringed so they really do not want any gun laws and any kind of gun control it's not only that they don't want new gun control but that they see any sort of existing gun control as a threat that needs to be rolled back so i think these are sort of like little bits of bits of the puzzle that help explain why we're in this awful situation so mules not the traditional kind of animals of course when the weather gets hot people don their birkenstocks they say it's mule season but today we're here to talk about a different kind of mule. Dinesh D'Souza's documentary, quasi-documentary. We got to come up with a new word for these kind of like propaganda videos that are ostensibly documentaries, but kind of, it's not exactly the thin blue line. A propumentary? Propumentary. A propumentary. I like that. Thank you, producer Jesse. Propumentary? 
Brompa-umentary. It kind of sticks in the mouth there, but I think we can figure it out. So we've got 2,000 Mules, which has become Dinesh D'Souza's documentary getting passed around on the right. Donald Trump loves it. Fact checkers hate it. It's been filleted for about a billion things wrong with it. But to refresh your memory, Zach, this documentary purports to show using GPS cell phone data, it purports to show that all these quote-unquote ballot mules were caught trafficking ballots. In fact, it does nothing of the sort. It sort of shows maybe that people went to the grocery store a couple times because it's this very broad fencing in terms of the GPS. Reuters has a great fact check. Washington Post Philip Bump has just like, he's been just drawing on this well for weeks now. He's driving Dinesh D'Souza crazy. But 2000 Mules has been a hit on the right, except for one thing. None of the big names want to talk about it. Zach, what's going on? Yeah. So of course, Tucker Carlson, for example, his own producer, Justin Wells, of course, got into this kind of spat with Dinesh over kind of airing it, which ended up turning into kind of this full-blown kind of war. So the issue is, is even Fox News and Newsmax don't want to run it, right? So they're even distancing themselves from these claims in the documentary, because of course, many of them revolve around these baseless claims that the 2020 election was stolen. And of course, as many of the listeners know, these companies, both Newsmax and Fox, are facing multi-million, billion-dollar lawsuits from the voting machine companies and others regarding their propagating of false and misleading claims about the 2020 election. So when these guys, these outlets, really got into the thick of voter fraud mania right after November 2020, they were just throwing out these wild voter fraud accusations. They basically destroyed Dominion Voting as a company, Smartmatic, in a way that I doubt really any Republican jurisdiction will ever use them again. But now they're facing these enormous lawsuits. Some of these outlets have already taken the L, apologized, perhaps done a payout. And so now they're happy to kind of insinuate there was voter fraud, but they're really gun-shy on really coming out in any way, especially that might defame a specific person. Yeah, absolutely. And we see this one of the biggest examples is kind of Tucker Carlson's program, who, of course, hasn't shown any of these clips to the documentary at all. And they've even had to kind of distance themselves from Dinesh, who has kind of gone crazy after they were like, no, dude, we're not totally going to run this after there was a kind of a personal spat between the executive producer of Tucker Carlson's show, Justin Wells and Dinesh, which has kind of trickled into and turned into this kind of weeks long war of words on Twitter, if you will. And then, of course, we have people like Ben Shapiro, who said that it's kind of missing connective tissue, if you will, and missing kind of dots being connected. Because of course, as we know, you can pretty much travel past a Dropbox and you can also travel past a Dropbox when you're going to school. And these things kind of cross pretty easily. And this cell phone data was over kind of a a longer period of time. So you have a lot of things going on here, a lot of half-baked ideas. I know, like, for example, one of the things this documentary doesn't even take into account is the fact that it was winter and people might have been wearing things called gloves. So really some elementary misses here. Because there's an implication that people were wearing gloves to avoid having fingerprints? Exactly. Right. So it's interesting here because Dinesh D'Souza has clearly been driven mad and is driving all of his ideological allies mad because he demands more coverage of 2,000 mules, but he can't get it. People are watching 2,000 mules. They're paying Dinesh. At one point, it was 30 bucks to watch it. Now it's $20. But he was just like stewing and getting so mad on Twitter. Oh, man, and saying, it's on sale now, Will. You didn't tell me. He's still retweeting people saying, why isn't this on Fox News? People have gotten so mad about this. Representative Mo Brooks from Alabama, he was on Fox News and he tried to say, you got to talk about the mules. (laughs) And this Fox News host, Sandra Smith, shut him down. It's a funny situation where Fox is like, hey, man, you got to just trust the Reuters fact checker, okay? She said Reuters debunked that and Dinesh, that kind of set off a new round of 
anger. And so much so that we're fascinated by types of guys here on Fever Dreams. And one new type of guy that's emerged is the 2000 Mules guy. And so these <laughs> are online commenters in the past, live streams or the comment sections under YouTube things for these conservative talk radio hosts. They might fill up with people saying, Google Pizzagate, or where we go one, we go all. And now it's people saying, why aren't you talking about 2000 Mules? This one talk radio host was just ranting on Twitter about 2000 Mules guys. And he said, I talked about 2000 Mules. How much more do I need to talk about it? And the reality is this. I mean, they're mad. Dinesh is mad. Obviously, it means more money for him, the more publicity it gets. But it's also like in order for something to really sink in on the right, they need everyone to buy into it. And so you have to have these sign offs from people like Tucker Carlson from Ben Shapiro. And when Tucker doesn't pick it up, that sends a signal to the audience that maybe something isn't totally accurate here, or at least that this is so hinky, Tucker's not even signing on to it. So that kind of that nagging doubt, I think, is what is driving Dinesh crazy. Now, Zach, I think you've also done some research. There's more trouble for Dinesh D'Souza, because now... 2,000 Mules has some rivals. Yeah. So, of course, 2,000 Mules. What a fun phrase to say, by the way. I just like, it just rolls off the tongue. I love saying 2,000 Mules. Yeah. Well, while Trump kind of endorsed 2,000 Mules, didn't get the sign off from others, as we know. But in making 2,000 Mules, he did kind of earn a little bit of clout. Some people, and especially the MAGA hardcores, kind of tuned in and listened to him, of course, when we watched Trump rallies like RSBN, like I did on Saturday. You have these random people in the crowd yelling, 2,000 Mules, 2,000 Mules, what? 2,000 mules. Of course, this has created some animosity, some jealousy in the air. And of course, kind of the person who's always wanted to propagate his ideas about the 2020 election is none other than my pillow CEO, Mike Lindell. So in light of 2,000 mules, Mike Lindell is now making his own documentary kind of about 2020 election fraud. I know he's done some things in the past, but this time it's a big production. So, of course, he has Lair Logan, the ex-Fox Nation host, who kind of has this very strange relationship with Fox Nation now. Either she isn't an employee or she is. She was on a big hitter on 60 Minutes, right? This is sort of the longtime decline of Lair Logan's career in that now she appears on a lot of QAnon shows now, and now she's the she's making like the my pillow inconvenient truth right exactly and now she's kind of spearheading mike lindell's new documentary half-baked documentary called selection code so this apparently digs into more kind of the, of the same that dinesh d'souza's documentary tries to hit at but of course this one is kind of spearheaded by mike lindell and, and kind of has an extra level crazy as it features people like Mesa. County Clerk Tina Peters, for example, and, and and some other folks that he's kind of been supporting, quote unquote, kind of along the way. Tina Peters is under investigation in Colorado for her handling of voting machines. She went into hiding at one point under Mike Lindell's protection, which is <laughs> great feudal system we have I think, here. I think she might be in a pillow fort. She might be in a pillow fort. <laughs> okay, so selection code is coming out. I also think is interesting is that Dinesh and 2000 Mules appear to have rivals from within the Mule community. So 2000 Mules Mules focuses on this organization called True the Vote, this longtime group alleging voter fraud, and it features a guy named Greg Phillips. So he's the star of 2000 Mules. But what's interesting to me is Greg Phillips is now out saying, forget the mules. We got something even bigger coming. So a few days ago, he was on this podcast, this QAnon show by a guy named Patel Patriot, who's kind of like a new era Q guy. Q's gone silent. So now there's all these kind of like would-be Qs. This guy claims Trump is the military still treats Trump as the commander in chief. That's kind of his claim to fame. So Greg Phillips goes on Patel Patriot's show and he says, yeah, we've got something coming that's more explosive than the mules and 10 times more likely to divide this country even further, which is kind of a funny way to hype it. Right. And so he says it's a 
a multinational deal. It involves billions of dollars. There's irrefutable evidence. We've been involved in a major counterintelligence operation that's very mature in this country. Skipping along here, there's been some betrayals along the way, which you know is definitely related to like Dinesh D'Souza or something. <laughs> and he says, once we get to the point that this is ready to go, it's going to make everybody forget everything about the mules, which is like, you were in the mules, man. You can't now take on 2,000 mules. So I think this also ties into the classic thing with all of these kind of conservative conspiracy theorist figures, particularly when they promise kind of bombshell evidence about something. The, the big example here is Jacob Wool, but this is a trope you see repeated over and over, is they promise the big moment's coming, and then it comes out, and in this case, it's 2,000 mules, and then nothing happens? So then pretty quickly, you have to say, oh, that was just the appetizer. The real stuff is right around the corner. Hey, Will, so who do we have on the pod this week? Right, so this week on Fever Dreams, we have Sarah Posner. She's a journalist who covers the religious right, and she's the author of 2020 book, Unholy, Why White Evangelicals Worship at the Altar of Donald Trump. So I have to say, the religious right is sort of kind of a blind spot for me in my coverage of the right. And so I wanted to have Sarah on, obviously with Roe v. Wade set to be overturned. I think it's a huge moment for evangelicals. And additionally, Sarah's done some great writing for Talking Points Memo about, more broadly, Christian nationalism in the Doug Mastriano gubernatorial race in Pennsylvania. And I think just, I mean, I think she has really great grasp on what's going on inside the right and the religious right and and the evangelical movement. So I'm excited to have her on. I'm looking forward to it. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of our subscribers, the people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up. Okay, today on Fever Dreams, we're joined by Sarah Posner. She's a journalist who covers the religious right and Christian nationalism. She's also the author of Unholy, Why White Evangelicals Worship at the Altar of Donald Trump. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Will. So I wanted to have you on because this topic of evangelical, Christian evangelicals in politics and the religious right is, I think, so relevant right now with Roe v. Wade set to be overturned. And I think we're seeing a lot of Christian nationalism in our politics, as you've written a lot about. A lot of these articles are a talking points memo. Really encourage folks to check it out. First of all, when you're talking about Christian nationalism, could you define that and sort of where, if we look at our politics today, where are we seeing examples of that? Well, Christian nationalism is a political ideology that holds that America was divinely founded as a Christian nation, and that has been undermined by secular and satanic forces. And it is the duty of patriotic Christian Americans to engage in spiritual warfare as well as political action to restore America as a Christian nation. And we've seen it in our politics since the founding of the religious right in the late 
the modern religious right in the late 1970s. But it really came to an apex with Donald Trump as president, even though it might seem to a lot of people that that's he was the most unlikely president to really maximize the support of the religious right. But he was largely widely seen by the religious right as a divinely anointed president, someone whose hand, God's hand was on him. God placed him in the Oval Office really to defend the Christian nation that was under assault by secularism, woke social justice warriors and that sort of thing. I guess, first of all, how did you get into covering this field? Well, (laughs) that's an interesting story. So back in the mid-1980s when I was in college, I did my senior thesis on the growing political apparatus of the religious right, um, which at the time was in its very nascent forms. And then after college, I went to law school. I practiced law for about a decade. And then I decided to get into journalism. And that was during George W. Bush's first term. And it was evident at the time the role the religious right was playing in his presidency. And so that was the thing that I decided to cover when I got into journalism and the rest is sort of history. I think about sort of the last moment where I think it seemed really pressing and to really think about the role of evangelicals in Republican politics. And obviously, they've been in this position for decades. But I think during the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration, it really felt like we had this moment where it was like evangelicals are like taking over politics. Think about movies like Saved and Jesus Camp. I think we had real like cultural moments. How has the religious right changed from the George W. Bush era to now? I think that during the George W. Bush era, they had ups and downs with him as president. This was similar to how they felt about Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush, where they felt like they had an ally in the White House, but they didn't always fully deliver on their policy wish list. They felt that they perhaps caved too much to the political winds. Then along comes Donald Trump, who doesn't cave to the political winds, who lets them have their judges, their political appointees within his administration, the policy changes that they want, and an open door to the Oval Office and the White House. Major figures in the religious right spent a lot of time inside the Trump White House. So I think a couple of things were happening there. One was during the Bush era, they had their heyday uh, during the 2004 election when they had over a dozen states pass these bans on same-sex marriage. Then along comes Obama. They're all freaked out by the Obama presidency for a bunch of reasons, including that he's the first Black president. And then during his presidency, you saw this unbelievably rapid changes in LGBTQ rights, including the Supreme Court striking down those bans on same-sex marriage that they had worked so hard for. And so a lot of what you see with their support for Trump in 2016 was a backlash to all of that. And I think what we've also seen in the period from 2016 to now is a change in how they view their role in politics. So for many years, they viewed their goal as maximizing the number of conservative white evangelicals and Catholics to the polls to win elections. Then it became evident during the Obama era that that wasn't working so well for them. And now They are among the chief supporters of Trump's stolen election lie. They've been getting behind state-level legislation that is 
intended to suppress the vote of Democratic and Black and Brown voters. So you've really seen this move from we're building this coalition, this moral majority that's going to elect Christian leaders into political positions. You see that change from that to we're going to support this autocratic president. So Sarah, as someone who's reported on the right, I mean, if there was like a concept that you could explain to people who are not familiar with the religious right in terms of what motivates their beliefs and their political actions, what would it be? I mean, I think of when I go to these kind of evangelical infused events, like some of these QAnon conferences, and they're sort of kind of get this sense that like, it's not just that we think we are going to be this kind of political faction and and we're going to represent our views, vote for candidates we like, but I kind of get the sense that it's like because we are this kind of specific flavor of Christianity, that we therefore deserve to basically run the country no matter whether or not we have a democracy or whether we have the numbers is sort of that is our right to sort of have dominion over the country. If there was a theological concept that you think would help the layperson understand this group's actions, what would it be? Well, you mentioned dominionism, which is hand in glove with Christian nationalism, right? So you believe that America was founded as a Christian nation and that it's your duty as a Christian patriot to help Christians take dominion over these institutions like the government or media or entertainment and or the legal system. And so those two things really go together. And I think that those are the most important concepts for somebody who's new to understanding the role of white evangelicals and the role of Christian nationalism in in Republican politics to really understand that when they say that America is a Christian nation, we need to restore the Christian nation or we need to take dominion or there are these seven mountains in society, government, entertainment, business, et cetera, and we need to take control of these seven mountains. When they say that, they really mean it. And so that's also why you saw so much Christian nationalist rhetoric and iconography around January 6th. Because once you have told people that it's their duty as Christians and it's their duty as patriots to like restore the Christian nation or take dominion or take control of these seven mountains, then they start to take it seriously. Talk to me about the role of that Christian iconography at at January 6th and in terms of the potential motivation for the rioters. Well, again, so there was a widespread belief in evangelical circles that Trump was anointed and that Trump was God's man in the White House. That was something that was spread not only by grassroots or rank and file people, but also by a lot of various evangelical leaders including people who were in Trump's close circle of evangelical advisors. And then you mentioned QAnon, right? QAnon helped amplify this idea that there was this secretive deep state that was trying to undermine Trump and undermine patriots and undermine the Christian nation. So you combine those things that you think that Trump is anointed. There's this deep state that's trying to undermine him And so therefore, when he loses the election, that must mean that it was rigged or stolen or the deep state was out to get him. So you saw a lot of flags and signs and people carrying Bibles and people invoking Jesus's name on January 6th. You remember the very, the now notorious video that Luke Mogelson took inside the Senate chamber where they prayed, the insurrectionists prayed in Jesus's name in the, in the Senate chamber. And you saw the QAnon shaman also praying in Jesus's name, which just shows how much this Christian nationalist idea 
infuses so many people on the right, even someone like him who doesn't present as Christian and in fact presents as having another religion. So when we're talking about QAnon, of course, I think that's definitely a piece of the puzzle. Of course, QAnon, their influence. What about Groypers? What about these white nationalists? What role do they have in kind of the rise of Christian nationalism as we've seen recently? I know, of course, Baked Alaska was a Groyper at one point and he, of course, stormed the Capitol. So what role do the Groypers play in all this? Well, That wing of white nationalism or white Christian nationalism has the religious motivations of a lot of people there are varied. You meet a lot of people who are very far-right Catholics, like Nick Fuentes, right, for example, and others would not necessarily identify as evangelical even, even though if they might identify as Christian, you'll meet people who identify as monarchists. But in that kind of white nationalist world, there's quite a variety there, but you do also see this idea that America is a Christian nation or America is predominantly Christian and they're defending America's heritage or culture and that is necessarily a Christian one. But that does not a lot of their Christian nationalism doesn't come out of a lot of the same circles that it does in the evangelical world. That's fascinating because I always see these guys that of course are groypers and they're always kind of like holding up these Bibles or kind of like rising. They have like crucifixes in their hand, right? I know I was at some rally the other day in DC and there's like a kind of a a grouping of them and they're all just holding up crucifixes to the air. And it's like a bunch of people are looking at them like, what the heck is going on here? Kind of strange, but I guess that also means something, doesn't it? Well, I would say that in the groyper world that this rad trad radical traditionalist Catholicism is the much more sort of predominant religious expression. But, and I guess what I'm saying is in the evangelical world and in the world of the religious right, which includes conservative white evangelicals and conservative white Catholics who aren't as far right as somebody like Nick Fuentes, right? They're kind of more like your run of the mill Republican Catholic, right? And in that universe, For decades, they have heard from lecturers and authors and conferences and pastors that America was founded as a Christian nation and these Christian values and this Christian nation needs to be restored. So they've been on this beat, you might say. They've been on this territory for a really long time before the Groypers came around. And so what you see on an event like January 6th is the all of these people kind of mingling together. But I wouldn't really put your average adherent to the religious right in the same category as the Groypers because they're not that far right. So, Sarah, you wrote this great article recently for Talking Points Memo about Doug Mastriano, who's now the Republican nominee for governor in Pennsylvania. And your argument here is that Mastriano represents sort of this fusion between 2020 election denialism, the big lie, what have you, and this Christian nationalism. Can you break that down for us? Yeah. So as we were talking about before, the Christian right was a movement that always prided itself on its get out the vote operation. And if we get out our voters, we will win elections. And that changed a lot in 2020 when they basically decided that the election should be overturned because their guy, God's man, didn't win. And you saw a lot of religious right, Christian nationalist organizing around January 6th, even not just on the day of. There was this big event called the Jericho March, which was an eight-hour event back in December of 2020, but actually was also a bunch of smaller local marches. And some of the people who participated in it also marched on January 5th and January 6th. And the 
Jericho March was basically a coalition of religious right figures two people who worked at the Department of Health and Human Services, and then a bunch of other figures on the far right, like Alex Jones and Oath Keepers founder, Stuart Rhodes. And the event was a very explicitly Christian nationalist event, which where speakers talked about that God was going to overturn the election or God was going to turn this thing around because there's no way that Trump could have lost the election. And even people that you wouldn't consider to be necessarily Christian or Christian right figures like Alex Jones were invoking a lot of Christian nationalist rhetoric and ideology at this event. And Doug Mastriano spoke at that event too. And he became one of the leading faces of a state legislator who was willing to go the distance to overturn the election and get a separate illegal slate of electors in Trump's favor and so forth. And now as he runs for governor in Pennsylvania, he has campaigned on an explicitly Christian nationalist agenda. He's campaigned at at Christian nationalist events, and he's been very upfront about what he would do as governor if the presidential election in 2024 did not come out as he liked. And so all of this is fused together in the sense that he believes he's carrying out God's will and that his candidacy and his potential governorship would be carrying out God's will and restoring God's kingdom or restoring Jesus's kingdom in Pennsylvania. And at the same time, he's been very explicit about his support for the stolen election lie. And so this is a really dangerous combination, right? Because not only is he willing to overturn an election that doesn't come out in his favor or in favor of his preferred candidate, but he actually believes and would convey that he's carrying out God's will in doing so. So where do you think this could potentially head in 2024 if Mastriano is elected? Right. So like he's potentially the most greatest danger to democracy in the United States if he becomes governor of Pennsylvania. He would appoint the secretary of state. He would sign off on the slate of electors. And he hasn't been shy about talking about what he would be willing to do if, say, Trump ran again in 2024 and lost Pennsylvania. And as we know from 2020, that Pennsylvania's electors, the number of electors that it has in the Electoral College is critical in how the election overall is going to come out. Disturbing stuff. You mentioned the Jericho March. On another note, what is it with the new prevalence, or maybe this it's not so new, but I feel like I'm seeing it over the past few years everywhere, is this rise of shofars. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I went to the Jericho March in, outside the Supreme Court in, back in December 2020, and everyone had their shofar, and they're marching around, and the idea is, oh, we're going to bring down the walls. In 2021, I went to a Reawaken America rally where they had, like, a shofar off, where you had, like, dozens of people bring their shofars and just really do a pitiful job of it. My but it just seems to have come out of nowhere and to be clear like as far as like pretty much none of the people involved in this are jewish i mean this is kind of this new evangelical embrace of the shofar it's not so new to me i've been seeing it for a really long time the use of a shofar at a christian nationalist event sometimes to display some kind of affinity to jews or israel or some kind of christian zionist idea but increasingly even before 2020 you were seeing it at Christian nationalist events 
where it was sort of seen as a symbol of how Christians were going to engage in spiritual warfare on behalf of Christian America. And this was a sign that it was just almost like a symbol of how they were going to fight this spiritual war for Christian America. So it it did become pretty common. And then what you saw in 2020, though, the little twist there was that just like Joshua's army brought down the walls of Jericho in the Bible, blowing the shofar would bring down the walls of the deep state in Washington, D.C. And that was the precise rhetoric that was used at the big Jericho March rally on December 12th, 2020. This was people were blowing the shofars when Mike Flynn was talking about that, the walls of the deep state. So it really kind of morphed from just this generalized Christian nationalist symbol or spiritual warfare symbol into a very specific sign or arrogation of a ritual object of another religion to advocate for a coup, right? So they're basically saying we blow the shofar and the walls of the deep state are going to come down and then Trump is going to be resurrected. So as you look into kind of the abyss, kind of future here. And as we kind of consider 2024 and we consider, of course, I think Trump potentially running again and things, what are you really watching out there? Like, what are you watching? What's the most concerning thing out there right now for you, at least? I think the most concerning thing is candidates like Mastriano, who are running for state office and would have the ability to alter election results. I mean, not that that would be legal if they did it right, but I mean, we're talking worse case scenario and doing it in the name of Jesus or in God's name. Because I think that kind of religious motivation is so, so dangerous, more dangerous than just somebody tinkering with the results just because they like Trump, right? Because someone like Mastriano would have a lot of voters in Pennsylvania and elsewhere have his back, basically by saying that he's trying to carry out God's will by doing this. And so I think if you look at what's happening in a state like Pennsylvania, which for many years was a purple state, right? But like now it's a little scary that somebody like Mastriano could win the governorship there or a state like Arizona, where somebody like Blake Masters is running a kind of similar campaign in terms of the overt Christian nationalism. He's behind, but he's nonetheless Arizona's primary isn't until August, so he's got a lot of time. So I think that the scary thing right now is these state races, just because there's so many many different races to keep track of, and also that it's kind of the culmination of various religious right groups building this over the decades, building campaigns to recruit people to run for office and building the infrastructure so that somebody with those kinds of views would have the resources and the backing to run for office. Yeah, I do have to say, it seems at least when I'm talking with folks that kind of adhere to some of this stuff, I mean, it seems really, really deep right? It seems like a really, really deep belief that they have. So I think this is kind of really, really interesting to kind of watch progress kind of into 2024. Interesting and scary. Definitely. Sarah Posner, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Again, Sarah is the author of Unholy, How White Christian Nationalists Powered the Trump Presidency and the Devastating Legacy They Left Behind. She's also on Twitter, at Sarah Posner. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Will.
So this week on Fresh Hell, where we unpack kind of the weird, wacky, and completely absurd things going on on the far right, we have Pizzagate. It's making its return, Will? What's going on? So yes, welcome to Fresh Hell. Folks, obviously, remember Pizzagate, the conspiracy theory that held that Democrats torture and sexually abuse children in satanic rituals in the basement of a Washington pizzeria. Well, Pizzagate fell out of fashion after December 2016, when a gunman shot up the pizzeria because Alex Jones and these other folks had hyped him up on these tales of Pizzagate. And then it reemerged as QAnon. But now kind of old school Pizzagate is coming back. So Stu Peters, this online right-wing radio host who is kind of one of these characters that comes up sometimes where I think he has a lot more influence than I think people in the mainstream realize that he's sort of a more hinged, at least in his public persona, kind of a more hinged Alex Jones. And so Stu Peters, he also, folks may remember, he came up with the snake venom, snake blood in the water supply movement, which I think sold a lot of water filters for a lot of hucksters before it ran out of steam. So now he has this new quasi-documentary, propermentary coming out called, well, I guess we don't know the name yet, but he has this new documentary coming out that sort of dredges up Pizzagate's biggest hits. And so it's him kind of sitting in this gloomy room and he's saying, what's adrenochrome? And, and so adrenochrome is the substance that's supposedly drained out of children by our world elites to keep them young, to keep George Soros young. He says, what's Frazzle drip, and that's a video that's fictional video of Hillary Clinton and Huma Abedin torturing a child, and, and then he implies that it was on Anthony Weiner's laptop, and all these people killed themselves after watching it. I mean, real like the ring type stuff. And so, I mean, really, these are like real old school things. I mean, if you consider 2016 kind of an old school moment in pro-Trump conspiracy theories, but he's bringing them back. Wow. So. If it's all coming back, I guess the old is new, the new is old. In bringing back Pizzagate, kind of what's the end goal here? So I think there's kind of this new flavor that's been added to Pizzagate now as they strive to revive it. And what has changed since 2016 on the right? Well, one thing that's changed is, I think, an increased focus on parental rights. If you think of critical race theory, if you think of Florida's anti-gay teacher backlash. So I think this idea of like parental control has really developed since Pizzagate was really on top. And so what they're doing here is Stu is now tying this into this kind of growing far right attack on the idea of child protective service agencies. I've been noticing a lot more of these incidents where it's like you'll have a baby who is allegedly being malnourished by his parents. And then this becomes a big moment for people like Eamon Bundy in Idaho, or people do these protests outside the hospital when the custody is taken away. And they say free baby Cyrus, stuff like that. So there's just anecdotally, I think there's been an uptick in this. And people like Stu Peters have really been on the front lines of, of this and these implications that child protective services is like a funnel for the cabal to steal these children. This has been kind of running for a couple of years. I did some writing on this woman named Cynthia Absug, this QAnon believer. She lost custody of her son. She was suspected of Munchausen's by proxy. And then basically she loses custody and then allegedly, because she's still awaiting trial, was plotting an armed assault with fellow QAnon believers on this foster home. She kind of goes on this saga fleeing from the FBI and police. But I think I'm seeing more of a mainstreaming of this idea that child protective services workers, social workers, are sort of like the handmaidens of Satan. They're working for this satanic cabal. And I don't know where it's headed. I can't imagine it's anywhere good. I mean, when I told, this was a few years ago, I was working on that story, and I asked the 
was the head of this National Association for Child Protective Services Workers. I said, you aware of this whole thing where people are saying if a social worker comes to your house, eat them with a gun, this kind of stuff? And she said, oh, no, I'm not. And they seem pretty concerned about it. I think I maybe came off like kind of a crazy person about it. But it seems as though I think we're seeing this rhetoric more and more. And I think it's kind of this merging of Pizzagate, which I think for a lot of people, even who believed in it, was a little abstract because it's not like necessarily your child was going to the adrenochrome dungeon. But I think adding in the child protective services angle and adding in this kind of new hyped up thing about like the left and the cabal, they're after your child in your school. I think that really personalizes it in a way that I think is not going to be great. And so I think given Stu Peters, the venom thing, the snake venom thing really went wide. And so I think the idea that this is his new thing now, I think is ominous. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics to popular culture. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian DeMeglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.